Welcome to our listeners to our second episode in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. My name is Farah Nazem, and I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain Monarch. Today, we are joined by Dr. Nina Guten, who will be focusing on helping our listeners understand the importance of suicide postvention for families, friends, and children who have experienced suicide loss. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nina. Could we begin by having you provide a brief introduction of yourself? My name is Nina Guten, and I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a practice in Pasadena, California. I also conduct trainings in suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention for the uh, Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Center out of D.D. Hirsch. I'm on their advisory board and facilitate survivors after suicide groups, and I'm on the Los Angeles County's Mental Health Suicide Prevention Network, and along with Vanessa McGann, I'm the co-chair of what we call the Clinician Survivors Task Force at the American Association of Suicidology. Uh, I am also a survivor of my brother's suicide. He died in 1995, and that loss and the subsequent healing has driven my interest in this subject and my the dedication of most of my career to both prevention and postvention. Well, we are so honored to have you today and um, really excited for our listeners to hear what you have to share, especially given all of the different types of expertise and experiences that you have had um, throughout the course of your journey related to suicide prevention and postvention. So to start us off for this particular episode, I was hoping that you could just briefly explain what suicide postvention is to those listening to the podcast. Sure. Postvention means after-the-fact support for people who are bereaved by a suicide loss. It's a very traumatic and devastating loss, and there are a lot of reasons why making sure that survivors of that loss have good support is important. Number one, uh, this is a loss where there are often, particularly when there's not support, consequences in terms of physical and mental health, and that, too, there's research that shows that survivors of suicide loss, particularly those who are not supported, uh, tend to be more likely to take their own lives. And as Ed Schneidman said, postvention is prevention for the next generation. The other thing is that this is a, a very stigmatized type of loss. And the way that people respond to it is very different than from other types of losses. And so survivors are often left to feel as though there's no safe place to share and process the loss and end up carrying it, uh, feeling very isolated and alone. So for all of those reasons, being able to know how to optimally provide support for those that are effective is very, very important. Yeah, I think that those reasons highlight the the mission and the goals of suicide postvention and also help us think about what the suicide postvention process entails. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, but I think it might be helpful for our listeners to hear from you how suicide postvention and the, the responses and reactions that people experience after a suicide loss, how that's related to the grief and bereavement process. You know, there's grief and bereavement after every loss, but uh, suicide loss is 
is different in a number of respects. You know, which isn't to say that other losses are not difficult and sometimes devastating, but there are several components that are involved with suicide loss, which sort of make it more intense and uh, more difficult. You know, and I'm going to mention several common components, but I do want to say that it's not one size fits all. Um, first of all, it's a very traumatic loss. And uh, I want to say that a PTSD symptoms after this loss are, are, are normal, in fact, in fact. And, but the problem is that often these PTSD symptoms impact one's ability to feel like they can function normally. And, you know, that includes a, almost a sense of unreality, you know, the avoidance of anything that's going to be triggering it, uh, difficulty in concentration and attention, etc. cetera. Um, it's also a very existential loss. It shatters all of our assumptions about the world, ourselves and others, um, our way of understanding our roles as parents, as siblings, as friends, etc. cetera, uh, because we, you know, we're unable to keep our loved ones alive and and again I'm going to be talking about that because it's it's there's often the sense that it was our responsibility to do so you know all of our old ways of understanding the world and ourselves are fragmented uh nothing makes sense anymore so um, again unlike other types of loss it's much more devastating there are also themes that, that make it different uh guilt whether or not it's warranted, but that can feel all-consuming and people can go over and over again, what could I have done? What did I do wrong? What could, should I have done? The shoulds, the could have, the would have, you know, blaming themselves for all sorts of sins, uh, as Jack Jordan puts it, of omission or commission, whether, again, whether or not this is warranted. The whys, um, you know, the person who holds the answers to why they took their life is not here to answer that question. And so it gets filled up with, why did this happen? What were the circumstances that led to this? Uh, and as a result of that, um, either it gets internalized as shame and self-blame, or it gets externalized and, oh, well, it was their fault. Uh, you know, it, to, to sort of make something that's often very complicated seem overly simple. Um, there's a sense of rejection and abandonment. Um, how could this person have done this to us? Um, didn't they know that we loved them? Didn't we? they know how much we needed them? So all of these themes add to that, as well as the stigma, tremendous stigma, around suicide, which is very often extended to the survivors. And there's actually research that shows that survivors of suicide loss are seen as less likable, more blameworthy, and less worthy of support than other types of loss. And so that just adds insult to injury. So even people who are well-meaning often say very insensitive things. Uh, they don't understand that the um, 
trajectory of this grief is much more intensive and takes longer to deal with than other types of grief. So after three months, people are saying, oh, aren't you over it yet? And so again, all of the, the stigma sort of makes people feel like nobody understands it, nobody gets it. Um, the shame and the blame gets internalized and it leaves people feeling like there's nowhere to go to process this, even though it's an extremely devastating type of type of loss. There's also just one more thing I want to mention that makes it difficult. It often causes um, issues in terms of family functioning. Uh, differences in grief styles can cause conflict. Say when, you know, if, if there's a loss of a child, the husband might be dealing with it in a very different way than the wife. The siblings might be dealing with it differently. And everybody thinks that their way of dealing with it is the correct way. Uh, conflicts about who to tell. Um, do we even mention this outside of the family? And conflicts about, you know, what do we say to the kids, particularly if the kids are younger? Do we try to hide it? Uh, which is definitely not recommended. Um, but if we're going to tell the kids, how do we do that? And what's appropriate for their age level? So there are all these extra issues that make it particularly uh, difficult and traumatic to navigate. Yeah, I think, you know, what you just spoke to there really pulls together how grief after a suicide loss has some similarities, yet some really unique and important differences, such as different emotional reactions, different thoughts, um, different themes, a different course in a lot of ways. And so I think that mm -hmm. provides a really solid rationale and um, reason why it's critical for us to think about suicide postvention and making sure that we're delivering that to those that have experienced the loss. So bridging from this rationale and these reasons, what are some of the components of suicide postvention that you incorporate when working um, with families and other loss survivors, or what you would encourage um, when others are working with uh, suicide loss survivors, such as family members and friends? Well, to, first of all, for anyone who's providing the postvention to really be familiar with what happens after a loss, to understand what's normal, and uh, and how it's different from other types of loss so that uh, you can let people know that, yes, it's normal to feel crazy. Yes, it's normal to, to feel uh, that you can't function the way that you used to be able to function. Yes, it's normal to have some of the symptoms of PTSD. And to the extent that you can sort of let people know that it's not just them, that what they're experiencing is what's expectable after a devastating suicide loss uh, is reassuring because they can finally feel like they don't have to worry about the judgment of others thinking that they're crazy or that there's something wrong with them. So the normalization of, uh, of this is, first of all, really important. Then to you know understand what the particular components they're struggling with at any given time. In the beginning, it's very common to just sort of be uh, shocked and for it to not feel real. And it's often, it, it takes a while, but when the shock and the sense of being unreal wears off, that's when the intense pain hits. And so 
basically to be there when the person is dealing with that pain, to listen and have them tell their stories over and over and over again for as long as it takes. Because what people need is for their experiences to be heard and validated. And again, to the extent that this doesn't happen (laughs) in the outside world, because people, unless this happens to you, people don't understand how to deal with this. The best thing to do is to say, tell me what's going on with you. Uh, Tell me what happened. Tell me how you're feeling about it. So really just providing a safe space for them to talk about what they need to talk about, to share what they need to share without judgment and ideally with saying, okay, well, that's pretty consistent with what happens after a suicide loss. I think what's wonderful is, is, uh, and I can give you some resources afterwards, is that there are many groups for survivors of suicide loss throughout the country. And what's nice about these, it's a place where other people can get it. Uh, Other people finally understand, and often by hearing other people's stories, people can say, ah, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who has these feelings. I'm not the only one who feels anger at the one that they lost. I'm not the only one who feels crazy because I can't function. So it really provides a sort of a more extensive validation for that type of experience. So again, I think the the bottom line for, for people is just say, tell me what's going on. Tell me your story. I want to hear it and to not place judgment on it. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. I mean, what you spoke to there of first, um, when supporting someone that has experienced a loss and some education you know, yourself, so that you are able to normalize their experience to support them through the pain um, for as long yeah. as it takes, like you so eloquently said, and then to really validate, I think is some of the uh, key ingredients to really thinking about an effective suicide postvention process and ultimately how we can support folks. I know that you had said, sort of as you described there, some of the components, a little bit about how Um, The experience will change over time, and we've also spoken to the fact that for each individual, some of this may look different. What types of things do you think about when um, wondering about how you can incorporate suicide postvention efforts over time? So a lot of the things that you just talked about there are definitely helpful immediately after the loss, and they will continue to remain helpful throughout um, someone's journey. But anything that comes to mind in terms of what to do um, to help support people months after the loss, years after the loss, or perhaps at key anniversaries? It's interesting because there are different sort of phases of the loss. And again, it's not one size fits all. Uh, The metaphor that I like to use, or at least that applied to my own grief, was uh, being on a roller coaster blindfolded. Uh, Initially, you it was crazy because you don't know when you're going up you don't know when when you're going down you don't know when you're going to have some of those loop to loops it's completely disorienting you just want to get off eventually again optimally with support what happens is you're still on the roller coaster but the blindfold comes off 
and you can sort of see where you go where you're going. You can see, oh, I've got an anniversary coming up. I better tighten my seatbelt. Then eventually what happens is like a little steering wheel comes up so that you can start to have more control over your speed, your your trajectory, um, because initially you you're completely out of control of this. This is in control of you. And then eventually what happens, the uh, the crests get a little bit uh, easier to navigate and you feel like you've got more control over the process. So, you know, as a metaphor, that, that worked for me in any case. Um, initially, what's very common is, is as, as I mentioned, just shock and disbelief. You know, that that usually... And, and sometimes people are able to go on autopilot to deal with, say, the components of, of getting the memorials together and things like that. But people will describe feeling like they're just sort of going through the motions, that they're not really present. Um, usually, and again, it's not one size fits all, but it takes, you know, from one to three months for that piece to resolve and then the reality hits. And then when that happens, and that's usually when everybody else is sort of saying, okay, goodbye, we've done our, you know, we've done our support, it's time for us to leave. But that's when the intense pain hits, the reality of not only the loss, but the circumstances of the loss. And so that's when, um, what we usually recommend for the group is that people be in a place that they're you know, of the pain as opposed to the, the the shock and disbelief because that's sort of, it's the body's way of saying, I'm not ready yet to deal with the pain. And when when the pain hits, that's when I think the kind of group support that we do is, is really works well. Um, and that at that point, it's just important to have a very safe place to tell the stories not only about the loss, uh, but about the person and about the the survivor's experience and what they're going through. And so, and I want to stress the idea of safety. So that means without judgment, with understanding about what's normal and being able to support the different components of the law. So for instance, if a person, you know, is going through uh, PTSD symptoms, again, it, 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 there's, it's not one size fits all in terms of the timeline, but also just to know that this takes longer to deal with than other types of grief, not only because of some of the, the social stigma, but just because of the intensity of it. And often people find that sometimes the second year, it, when everybody is assuming they should have dealt with this by now, is often more difficult. Number one, the social support has disappeared. And number two, the reality is there. They've got all of the anniversaries and birthdays and milestones to deal with. And it's, um, you know, it, it, it's usually a trajectory of at least a couple of years before people start feeling uh, what we call, people will ask, will I ever go back to normal? And we talk about a new normal. Lenina, thank you so much for, I think, that beautiful metaphor that really helps illustrate, I think, phases of the loss and different experiences over time with the important message, um, as you illustrated there in that metaphor, that the roller coaster ride never ultimately ends. It may 
kind of look different at a different point across the the ride, but that that ride is still happening for people. I think for listeners that have experienced a loss, I think they can probably really uh, resonate and understand what that means. And then I think for those that are listening that want to support others that have experienced a loss, I think you provide some beautiful examples of how to how to support and how to understand. So thinking about some of the things that you nicely outlined there in terms of the process and phases and experiences, do you have any specific um, differences that you see for that process when it comes to children who have experienced a loss? And again, I'm sure that this is also a, not a one-size-fits-all, but a, is there anything important for our listeners to know in terms of special considerations for thinking about children after a loss? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, it's important to know that, that the children uh, deal with grief very differently from adults and that I think, it, you know, and, and, and the other thing that's really difficult and, and parents often wonder, you know, how can I support my kids when I'm grieving and I feel like I'm impaired? And um, there are actually, I'm going to, on the resources that are included, I'm going to um, put down some links to some great resources for families to support their kids. But one of the things that is, that's really important to remember in supporting their kids is that honesty is crucial. That you have to uh, actually talk to kids about the nature of the loss, albeit in developmentally appropriate ways. And there are, you know, I I don't want to go into too much detail, but there are many, many reasons for this. Often families feel like, oh, no, the kids are too young to understand. We won't tell them until later. But the kids will find out. And they'll find out from other people outside of the family. And then we'll feel betrayed uh, and all sorts of other things. Now, kids will, especially younger kids, will be upset for a little while and then just will sort of move on as normal and parents will assume, okay, they're, they're, they're taking it really well, but they deal with it very differently. And one of the ways that experts who work with kids often support them is, is using play activities or art activities to, to allow them to express their feelings in, in that way. And there are some really good resources um, in terms of kids' grief groups and things like that, I, again, through the Dougie Center, and I'm, I can give you those resources. Um, for adolescents what and teenagers, what they say over and over again, honesty is super important to um, sort of not forget about them. Sometimes, particularly when there's parents lose, lose a child, the other siblings that end up feeling like they're kind of neglected in this and to uh, optimally make sure that they're offered support too. And I know out here we have a teen suicide grief group support through D.D. Hirsch and to, and I'll give you the resources to, to see whether there are teen support uh, groups and people who have expertise in this in other areas. So, again, it's not one size fits all. Um, The cultural issues might be different in terms of 
you know, who feels comfortable seeking help outside of the family. There might be gender issues around help seeking that play into this. So again, um, anyone who's offering support, whether it's professional or just as a friend, uh, needs to be cognizant of the culture of the family and what's going to be helpful in terms of encouraging them to either keep it within a small network or move outside of that. Great. And I, I know a little bit ago you had referenced how there can be dynamics within a family where, as you mentioned previously, different members of the family may be grieving in different ways um, and having different reactions, a different course at different times. Wondering, do you have any recommendations or any thoughts on how to navigate some of those challenges that can come up within a family dynamic? I think what I see most often is that say one person, um, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but often this is um, these are women want to talk about it, want to process, want to share, and um, that particularly traditional men uh, deal with it very differently. Uh, they are not interested in talking. Um, they wa- want to do something about it. So, for instance, my father uh, could not talk about Jeff's loss at all. He took all the pictures down. I would try to sort of pull things out and say, how are you doing? And he would change the subject. And But what he did was he said, I want to put together a family foundation. Uh, and the family foundation would support uh, efforts to prevent suicide. And so he created that, which is something that he was comfortable doing, but he could not talk about it at all. And for a while, I was angry and frustrated because I needed to talk about it. And he was the only one who who I could share memories with. In retrospect, I realized that he simply was not able to do that. That for him, it would have just caused uh, too much, uh, you know, he did, first of all, I don't think he had the vocabulary vocabulary to talk about grief and that wasn't that simply wasn't his way and so I think to sort of to have respect for other types of grieving styles um, because often what happens in families is you're not doing it the right way or you're not supporting me in the right way I want to talk about it and you're not talking about it so I feel unsupported so to sort of recognize that even if people in the family can't meet your needs in terms of grief to sort of say, okay, well, these this that's how they're dealing with it. I'm going to see if there's another way where another place maybe where I can get my needs met. Um, and so if, if, if you know, and, and again, there can be conflicts in terms of who do we share this with? You know, do we, is this public information or do we keep this in the family? Do we uh, come up with some other story about why we lost our, our our child or our sibling? You know, again, there can be conflicts around that as well. Yeah, I think that provides some really nice insight as to what you've talked about throughout the podcast of how there isn't a one-size-fits-all and how that can be really challenging when it comes to a family unit because that's definitely going to be the case as well. And I think it also then really speaks to how we likely need to lean on different sources of support 
to help us at different yeah. times, different pieces, based on all the different types of relationships we have with folks in our life. Um, and so that's where I wanted to kind of take us next to wrap up this particular podcast. I know throughout the podcast, you've referenced some um, resources and areas for support. Um, wondered if you wanted to touch on any additional um, resources, websites, ideas that you've either personally found helpful or also those that you professionally recommend. Okay, well, I can uh, certainly give you all of the links to these, but um, both the American Association of Suicidology and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention on their websites have ways to enter your zip code and then what would come up with uh, are, are all of the support groups for survivors after suicide uh, that are either in or adjacent to that zip code. And so I'll provide you with the, the link to both of those websites. As I mentioned, the Dougie Center uh, is has really wonderful resources in terms of how to support kids after a suicide loss, kids of all ages, and they've got books, and there's actually links to free grief camps for kids. Uh, so I'm going to provide that as well. Um, if you're interested in starting a support group, Friends for Survival out of Sacramento, uh, Marilyn Koenig actually put together uh, with a bunch of experts in the field a really wonderful manual about how to go about uh, starting and running support groups. Uh, so... And then uh, both of these websites also have wonderful bibliographies where you can actually search. I'm pretty sure you can search by the type of loss and come up with lots of great books and articles and resources that can help you find some information particular to the type of loss as well. Great. And like you mentioned, too, for our listeners, we'll have a section where you can easily access um, some of these resources that Nina talked about with links um, and so that you can check them out yourself, pass on to others that you think might be interested in in taking a look a bit further. Um, so Nina, I, I know we're kind of coming to the end of this particular episode and this podcast, uh, but wondered if you had any final words that you wanted to share for those that may be listening who have experienced a loss themselves or perhaps others that are hoping to support someone um, any final words or anything that you want to share as we finish up? Well, again, just sort of to um, be kind for, for survivors, just be kind to yourself. Know that uh, this takes longer than other types of loss and is generally more intense. And to know that you're not crazy even when you feel crazy. Uh, for those who are supporting them to just create safe places for them to uh, talk about what they want to talk about, to cry, to deal with things the way that they need to deal with them without imposing your own judgments on how this should be. And again, to the extent that you can deal with some extra support, make use of some of the resources that I will provide in terms of finding uh, support groups 
And most support groups will be able to link you to therapists who have specific expertise in this type of loss as well. Great. Well, thank you once again, Nina, for joining us today. Nina is also featured on an additional episode for our podcast series. So be sure to check her out along with her colleagues, um, talking a little bit more about suicide postvention specifically for professional caregivers. So um, you'll be able to hear Nina's expertise in in another content domain. But thank you once again, Nina, for joining us today. You're very welcome. by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivor Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out our other episodes in this Suicide Postvention series.